Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Shona Thompson filling in for Bill. And coming up, we have Dr. Lori Turnbull of Dalhousie University on the nasty online bullying of female politicians. Dr. Amit Arya on the impact of Omicron in long-term care homes. Also, if you're thinking about ringing in the new year with something sparkling in a glass, we have a wine blogger who not only will break down the types of sparkling wines out there, but will also help you choose a glass and pair it with some interesting nibblies. Bubbles and Nibblies, all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast that starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's something that I've noticed online in the last couple of years especially, and well, maybe you have too. It's a trend of attacking female politicians online. In some cases, two in particular recently, somebody showed up overnight and vandalized the home of a politician. In another instance, a guy in a truck showed up in the middle of the night at the home of a Hamilton city councillor. It's one thing to have a different point of view, but these incidents... They're going too far. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Thank you for joining me this morning. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So it seems to start off with some negative rhetoric, and then it just escalates. And I'm I'm not sure if it's worse to engage with these people in some kind of a conversation or to ignore these things. I know. It's, It's really difficult, I think, when you're facing that kind of aggression and hostility and harassment, whether it's online or physically, it's really difficult to know how to handle that. And as you say, like, is it better to try to have a conversation where, you know, we can get to some sort of standard of civility? Or is it better to just try to go around it and ignore it because that keeps your own, you know, that might be better for your own sense of safety, but it's really difficult. And it's it's not a new thing at all, unfortunately, but we've definitely seen these kinds of behaviors intensify over the pandemic. And is it because people are anonymous and they're online and they they think they can get away with, uh, well, things that they wouldn't say to their grandmother, right? Yeah. Or, or... Yeah. I mean, like, I think it's, there is a sense that people are less accountable for what they say when their name is not attached to it, their face is not attached to it, they're not actually looking you in the eye when they say it, like people have a sense of, of removal from what they put online. And sometimes these these things are coordinated, right? Like this is not just an individual sitting in one's basement attacking someone. That's awful. But sometimes it's it's also like this is more of a of a of a coordinated effort where there's more than one person and there's a sense that, oh yeah, like if we're all jumping on this bandwagon, we're all giving this person a hard time and we're all using anonymous accounts that can't really be traced back to us, we're not accountable. We can just throw mud and, you know, no nothing gets flung back at us. But the one that, that really started to uh, worry me was the one that I outlined in the introduction for this interview. And it's a situation right here in Hamilton. Uh, f- a city female city councillor and a guy shows up in the middle of the night with a truck. She's got kids at home. Like, that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying, and no one should have to live that. And, I mean, when you go back to the point on escalation, like, you kind of wonder, right, like, does it start with somebody being aggressive in a way that's not, at, you know, not physical, not in person, not on someone's property, and then it climbs to the point where, you know, they, they're sort of feeling more comfortable doing things that are far more dangerous. I mean... That's when you're thinking about that type of thing that can happen to you, and when somebody hears that story, I mean, 
how can we really expect women to run for office when you're thinking, like, this is what I'm going to have to live with and how am I going to balance? Like, it's, it's hard enough to balance family and work responsibilities without that kind of aggression. But, like, how are you going to justify potentially putting you know, your family at risk because someone's trying to harass you or intimidate you or hurt you. And I mean, like, no one, no one should have to live that. And we all have a responsibility to, to make sure that political office is truly equitable and accessible to everybody. Well, you have to wonder if that really isn't the underlying theme, at least in some of the cases, where it's to prevent women from seeking higher yeah. office and taking those leadership roles. Well, exactly. Like, there's a sense of there being a deterrent effect and it's, you know, it's, it is absolutely terrible. And I think we can see that, you know, like even, I mean, again, like I, I think things have gotten worse during COVID just because um, there's more online activity. There's a sense that there's, there's a, again, that sense of removal, right? Like you're not as accountable. And I think people are, um, you know, kind of used to now being able to engage entirely online and they're not really out there in the world. But I mean, I think even before that, we can see it's harder to get a woman to run for office than it is to get a man to run. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, it's not like the types of aggressions that we see, the ones that are, are most in our face are the ones that are violent, the ones that are hostile, the ones that involve trespassing on someone's public pro- property and trying to intimidate them. But there are also, you know, smaller things that happen like, you know, not being respected as much in meetings and not being listened to and not have doors open for you the same way that other people get them open and not being, you know, treated the way that you should be in, in terms of respect, conversations, like, you know, those sorts of things exist and are much harder to pin down and prove. It's much harder to try to explain to people, like, this is how I'm being minimized at work and it's happening every day, but I know everybody smiles and pretends they're fine with me and it's like, no, not really. And so it's, it's really difficult, I think, and there's multiple layers of how a woman can feel ostracized and not really included and valued in the workplace, all kinds of workplaces, but politics for sure. Well, and it also seems to be directed in particular at, uh, at female politicians who really have quite a voice and are very smart and are very thoughtful about the positions that they take. They seem to get attacked more and in a more aggressive way. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's like, it's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> you see it happening all the time that, I mean, even some people, frankly, whose voices I would normally think were thoughtful, um, really responded in odd ways, for instance, when Christian Freeland was named the finance minister. And people were, were talking about, you know, like, oh, my goodness, like, Canada has no finance minister. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, there was actually conversations about whether this woman is qualified. And I'm thinking, listen, you like her or you don't, whatever. But you can't seriously question Christian Freeland's competence on any level in the world. But I mean, it's amazing how people feel like they can absolutely put those kinds of, you know, start to like question the credentials of someone who there's just no, there's no ground for that. But I think sometimes too, when when there's a sense of, of affecting other people's thoughts and behavior. And when one person says something, it's like, okay, that makes it okay for, for another person to say something. And so then it becomes justified in a, in a weird way, which it's not justified when people think that. And so, yeah, like it's, it's really difficult to think about how you're going to manage all those things if you're a woman who decides to get into public office. And, and again, as you say, like be a really strong vocal support for the people that you represent. Well, I'm really glad you brought up the example of Christia Freeland because I don't remember any male finance minister ever having to truck out their uh, their CV 
and justify them being appointed to that job. She's internationally recognized and internationally educated in terms of finance and, and economics. Oh, exactly. Like, and as you say, like, you would never see that kind of response to, a, you know, regardless of what the man's qualifications and credentials were, you just don't see that. But it was immediate. And it was, again, like, it, it, I'm not just talking about trolls on Twitter. Like, these were people who were in the mainstream media who were actually questioning whether this person ought to be in that position. And it's just like, again, like, I mean, how there is that sort of message to the rest of, of women. Like, how are you supposed to honestly think about, you know, spending, why should you spend your time and your talent and your energy doing this if it's going to be not only thankless, but treated with hostility as though you don't belong there? It's just unbelievable. Well, and and going that next step, um, just recently, uh, Christine Elliott, the health minister of Ontario, people showed up at her door. At her door. Like, I can understand you having a difference of opinion, but showing up at someone's home and sharing their home address... That's, yeah. that's going so far. And again, it's another single woman. Now, most of her sons, I believe, are adults. But uh, a single woman living alone, that's particularly scary. It is, absolutely. And I mean, there's this sense that, um, the, you know, the, the woman isn't entitled to her privacy, to her safety. There's some sense of entitlement about intruding on her personal space, her private life. And again, like, if you have a difference of opinion, that's cool. That's what you know, we have, we have ways for you to communicate those things in ways that are healthy. But there is this lack of value attached to women in politics. There is this weird sense of entitlement that I'm, you know, I'm allowed to shout at you and call you names and devalue you as a person because I don't believe you in what you're saying and I don't believe you should be here. It's unbelievable. Like, it's just, you know, and there's, there's something strange that happens where that becomes okay in ways that are directed at women that we would never see that happen to men. And I'm not saying it should happen to men. That's not my point. The point is there, it's just a different kind of experience if you're a woman in politics. Now that said, I will throw this on here just to, just to kind of be, be aware of what happened this year. I think we're seeing a rise in this sort of behavior broadly in politics. Like we did see the prime minister go to a number of campaign stops where he was protested to the point of, physical violence, and they had to rethink some of their campaign stops because they didn't want anybody to get hurt. So, I mean, there's definitely been a long and very um, documented hostile treatment of women in politics, but it seems like there's also broadly a sense of polarization, a sense that, you know, totally not okay behavior is becoming okay. Um, And I don't know, you know, how, like, I hope that that doesn't continue in the, the next election campaign. Well, I think we've got one coming up in Ontario. Oh, that's actually a a couple next year. Not only uh, provincial election, but municipal election as well. Um, I think a point that you made earlier is one that is really well taken. That this seems to have escalated during the the pandemic, and maybe it's people who feel that their voice isn't being heard because they're in isolation. It's a really good point, and like so, another story that came out yesterday was. related to the success of the People's Party of Canada in the last election and the amount of election expense rebates that they got back. And there was an interesting conversation, you know, yesterday and into this morning about what that really means and whether this this is, you know, this is what we want. Do we want to promote the presence of voices in our political system that tend to contribute to the sense of polarization and the sense of, you know, zero sum, which is not what we we want in our political system, I think. But for sure... um, there, there is definitely um, a palpable sense in our political system, and definitely in the U.S. as well, 
that there are people who really do not feel represented by anyone in our system. And there's, you know, energy that, that has been harnessed, I think, um, by a, a, a particular political party. And then I think there's probably some energy out there that hasn't been harnessed yet around the sense of feeling excluded, feeling isolated, feeling like the system's not working for you, that the rules don't apply in a way that's fair to you, that um, you know, certain things like being expected to, to be vaccinated before you go to work, though, like there's a sense that there's people who are choosing not to be vaccinated are treating, being treated poorly. Like there's, again, like this kind of polarized you versus me, either or kind of politics that I think is really difficult to try to manage in a democratic system where you're working toward civility in some sense of consensus and common good. Well, that brings us around, I guess, to what can we do about it? I think there's going to always be uh, a segment of the demographic that will hide behind anonymous troll accounts, um, yeah. and, and they're just going to be rabble-rousers no matter what. But um, there's another segment of the population that if they would just kind of take a deep breath and really ask themselves why they're getting this angry about that subject... Um, maybe that would help put a, a lid on some of this. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, I think um, sometimes I get, I get a bit discouraged when um, there is a move to censor voices. I don't think that helps. I think it's much better for us to talk, even if people say things that we don't like or that we find are offensive. You know what? Fine. Like, let's all have a civilized conversation. I think as long as the rules for the conversation are based on civility, you can, you know, we can manage the content of what's being said. We can manage difference of opinion. Where I think we're seeing um, some danger creep into the system is there is, I think, kind of slowly a breakdown over the rightness of the rules that we govern, used to govern ourselves. And even again in the U.S., you can see it. There's, you know, the sense that people who are losing elections aren't accepting that, right? So like Trump is sort of still not accepting the fact that he lost the election last year. And I mean, that's dangerous. Like, I think danger, like democracy is based on everybody accepting the rules, even if it doesn't go your way. And so when we see a decay of, of a kind of institutional decay like that, it becomes problematic. So I think what would help is, again, civilized conversations, hopefully some, you know, increased education and awareness around what our rules are and what is, what is right and what is wrong and how we, we all kind of have to accept the rules, even though we don't always get what we want. And then I think more broadly, a real look at what institutions and rules we have that aren't fair at all, right? Like how, and, I, and the government has made some, some um, reference to this in its mandate letters and speech from the throne and things like that. I think one of the things that COVID has shown is that w we do govern ourselves by institutions and rules, many of which are uh, trapped in colonialism and attitudes and beliefs that are not right and not fair and have been perpetuated over time. And so part of it is about unpacking those institutional things. And definitely the patriarchy is one of those things, right? Like it, that is perpetuated in institutions in a lot of ways is not good. And we need to ask questions about that too. And when discussing it, remember it's freedom of speech, not freedom of belligerence or freedom of aggression. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Dr. Turnbull, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for covering this. Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you've been hearing in the news this morning, Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, is holding a news conference this afternoon at 3. 
Uh, it, his news conference earlier in the week was postponed. Um, and so today is when we are supposed to be getting the latest guidance from him. Part of that may be about the CDC guidelines. Uh, part of it, as we've been hearing in the news, may be about uh, a fourth booster shot for those who are in long-term care. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this and some other topics as well is Dr. Amit Arya, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, as well as being a palliative care physician. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Um, so what are you expecting to hear from, uh, from Dr. Moore this afternoon? Is there any indication as to what he might be talking about? To be honest, I think we've been waiting um, on edge, uh, you know, and I, I'm speaking on behalf of health workers to just understand what the plan is. I, I think it would have been helpful in this crisis situation to even have daily briefings from, you know, leadership in the government, as well as the chief medical officer of health, Dr. Moore, about uh, what we're supposed to do in this situation when, you know, as you know, uh, contact tracing, uh, PCR testing is completely overloaded and overwhelmed. We're seeing uh patients coming into the hospital and even in the ICU with Omicron and increasing outbreaks in long-term care. And we're starting to lose more and more healthcare workers to isolation as well. And school, you know, school is supposedly supposed to open and there's supposed to be, you know, some decision about this, um, you know, coming up very soon. So naturally, a lot of people are on edge and we need to have daily updates at this point in time. Well, and I think your point is well taken. Also, we were told earlier this week that uh, the Premier said that he would have some word about schools later this week, and it's Thursday. Yeah, so, I mean, that's very distressing to, you know, myself. I mean, I'm a parent as well, and, you know, as, you know, we can imagine for all parents in this situation. um, Once again, I think the question that a lot of people are asking is, where is the plan? And, you know, what can we do, uh, of course, to keep schools safe, firstly, for them to open? We've heard a lot of discourse uh, through the pandemic, which has sort of said, you know, that schools need to be open. And, you know, there's the classic sort of public health thing, which is that, you know, schools should be the last to close and first to open. But what are we actually doing to achieve that? And how can we actually achieve that with, you know, school opening just around the corner on Monday and, you know, runaway community transmission of Omicron? Well, one of the things we've been hearing this morning is that what might be a part of the announcement this afternoon from Dr. Moore is the possibility of a fourth vaccine shot for people who are in long-term care homes. Have you heard anything about this fourth shot? What, What can you tell us about it? Yeah, so I think that is something that will help. Right. And just to give you an idea of where we're at in long term care, I mean, I'm a palliative care physician who not only works in the hospital, but I work in the long term care system. So, um, you know, on December 24th, uh, about six days ago, we had uh, only 26 outbreaks in long term care facilities in Ontario. And today it will shortly be announced we have 92 We have 92. I'll say that again. So this is out of control in our long-term care facilities. And uh, what happens in these outbreaks um, is that people, uh, once again, are confined to their rooms. And for many of the people who live in long-term care, that just worsens social isolation and loneliness. Uh, They're already confined to the facility where they can no longer leave. But then with an outbreak, they end up confined to their rooms. And that has a dramatically negative impact on people's quality of life. The number of people who can come in and see them is now restricted to just two essential caregivers. So, uh, you know, a fourth dose would likely help. Uh, there's not much evidence about this, but NASI has recommended for people who are immunocompromised, such as the people who live in long-term care, there should, you know, we should strongly consider a fourth dose. 
Um, you know, given that it's been three months from the third dose and most long-term care residents uh, here in Ontario received that third dose in September, so it would be time. But we need to do much more than this, to be honest with you. We need to do a lot more. We still don't have all health workers in long-term care and essential caregivers being provided N95 masks. Uh, last we heard from the province, the third dose or booster shots that were provided to health workers, which is, as we know, crucial for protection from Omicron, was just at 43%. So that's clearly not enough. And, you know, once again, like the root cause of this problem and why we're seeing so many outbreaks all comes back to community transmission of COVID-19. We simply, it's just not possible to have a scenario where we have runaway community transmission. I mean, we're, it's, right now people are thinking that the real number of cases is well over 50,000 in Ontario. And then, you know, when we have so many cases, we can't expect it to stay out of these places like long-term care facilities where vulnerable people live. And I think one of the lessons we certainly should have learned during the first wave of this pandemic, and perhaps we haven't really learned it yet, is that, you know, people who are in long-term care are, are particularly vulnerable. We have a family member in long-term care battling two different kinds of cancer. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, so these are people who are generally in their last year or two of life. Uh, they almost always have a life-limiting illness. Um, which commonly is dementia, but it could be other life-limiting illnesses or a combination of these illnesses like cancer, end-stage lung, or heart disease. These are some of our most vulnerable citizens. And what not only makes them vulnerable is their individual sort of medical condition, but also the fact that, of course, this is a congregate setting. So what this means is that, of course, if one person, uh, you know, a staff member, for example, brings in, uh, at, you know, the Omicron you know, virus or the Omicron variant inadvertently or unknowingly, it could lead to many, many people becoming infected. And also, it could lead to health workers being infected in long-term care. So it's kind of a double vulnerability where when people are sicker and they're infected with COVID-19, they actually need more monitoring and they need more care and you know supervision to make sure that they're okay. For example, their oxygen and their breathing rate. But at that time, the health workers are unfortunately off sick. So you actually have less healthcare staff. So that's why we've got to do all we can to protect long-term care. Well, we are expecting that this news conference this afternoon from Dr. Moore uh, will be focused, at least in part, on the guidelines, the suggestions, really, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. about shortening the isolation and quarantine times from 10 days down to five, uh, but with... Uh, an abundance of masking involved in that as well. Um, And I'm just wondering about the application of that in a long-term care setting. That doesn't seem to be enough. Well, I mean, so I can tell you that, you know, we should have done a lot more, I mean, proactively to protect our healthcare system. I mean, we should have known at this point in time what exponential growth means. That means that, you know, obviously the earlier you act and the more proactive you are, you know, the better it is later on. And I, I think that we've really done a disservice in general because, and, and I would even say, you know, you know what, what I'm hearing from non-healthcare friends and family members and members of the public is that people were told this is mild when, I mean, it may cause less severe illness than, you know, um, you know, Delta. But, you know, the fact is that, that speed is always going to overwhelm mildness. So even if it's 50% less likely to cause severe illness, if you have double the cases, you have the same number of people who are going to be seriously ill. So that's something which people need to understand. And once again, 
I mean, uh, I'll say it again, we cannot just have this, uh, you know, this mass infection policy at this point where everyone is allowed to get infected, which means that people who are even vaccinated but have decreased response to the vaccine, such as the people who live in long-term care who are almost all immunosuppressed, we're basically abandoning this population to suffer, um, be confined in their rooms again, and even to die from this virus unnecessarily. Now, speaking, sorry, about your your question about return-to-work policies, um, perhaps this may need to be considered, but then we need to have some universal test to stay where uh, health workers are testing themselves, perhaps after five or six days. And if the rapid test is negative, which means they're no longer infectious, then they're provided N95 masks uh, to come to work. So that's the only thing that would be acceptable. Anything less than that would, of course, be much higher risk to spread Omicron and once again, much worse for our healthcare system. Well, and it seems just getting a hold of uh, a rapid antigen test, let alone a PCR test, is a difficult enough task. Do we have enough of those in long-term care? Yep. So that's a very good question. And that's the, you know, the problem here is that we can't uh, allow health workers to come back to work when they're actually sick and infectious for obvious reasons. I mean, we shouldn't be, Uh, you know, that would be, you know, disastrous in my mind, especially in these places like long-term care facilities or, of course, hospital wards as well. Um, So, uh, you know, if we don't have enough rapid tests, um, that's a problem. I'll tell you in long-term care, they are rapid testing everyone uh, at least twice a week. Uh, as you can imagine, that's not enough. We even need more in long-term care. And uh, N95s are another issue. So right now, the provincial directive says that um, N95 masks are only to be provided if someone is providing direct care to someone with suspected COVID-19 or confirmed COVID-19. But when we have a virus that is so prevalent, where basically all of us at this point uh, know people that are infected, um, and it spreads like smoke in a room, uh, where which means it can, you know, seep around corners and go into other rooms, that absolutely just makes no sense. And it's predisposing us to more uh, cases, um, you know, more infections, which are unnecessary. So, I mean, at, at, at the least, I would think that even before they think about that, they need to protect the, you know, the current healthcare workforce right away now. In your opinion, um, you know, I'm wondering about uh, making sure that the vaccine mandates are able to be met for people who are working in long-term care. I mean, we're sort of progressing through that mandate stage. Um, Why wasn't this a requirement months and months ago? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, You know, there is a mandate. I will clarify, there is a mandate for health workers in long-term care only. And it went into effect in the beginning of December. But the problem with the mandate is that it was only for two doses. And we know with Omicron, the evidence has, of course, significantly changed, where we know two doses is insufficient protection against Omicron. And that crucial third dose is what is what really protects you against symptoms uh, from from this uh, variant. So uh, what should happen is, and uh, this is happening to some extent, but I'll be honest, it's not happening fast enough. Uh, we need to accelerate the delivery of third doses to health workers and essential caregivers in long-term care. Uh, it is creeping up like about, I believe, about 10 days ago. It was about 37% of health workers uh, with the third dose in long-term care. Now, with the latest data that we have, is 43%. But, you know, Omicron is already out of control. So this needs to be an all-hands-on-deck effort where we actually send mobile vaccination trucks, um, you know, maybe through public health or family physicians, nurses, to these uh, long-term care facilities to get third doses in, in as many people's arms as possible. And yes, I do agree with this upcoming announcement that for people who are three months from their third dose, the residents, they should be getting their fourth dose. And that can be done in that fashion as well.
Um, I guess this is sort of cycling back to something that you said at the very outset of our conversation um, with regards to um, the spread and our, uh, how fast we are not responding to how things change in this. Um, because it seems like these news conferences and these guidances, um, they're, coming, they're coming a little late because, it, as you said, it's out of control. A virus doesn't uh, doesn't respect a statutory holiday or a religious holiday. It will do what viruses do, and that's spread. Yeah, I mean you're you're absolutely right, and it's it's sort of quite um, frustrating as a frontline health worker that even at this point in the pandemic, I'll say it again, we haven't realized that exponential growth, yes, is in fact exponential. Um, you know, lagging indicators such as these um, outbreaks in long term care, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, deaths are in fact lagging, and you won't see them in the initial parts of you know a new variant arriving. And of course, um, when we talk about beds or we talk about, um, you know, having, uh, you know, spaces for people, spaces are not enough and beds are not enough if you don't have a healthcare workforce that is well and staffed well enough to look after the patient. So this is something, to be honest, I, 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 I can't accept that, you know, so far into a pandemic, our, you know, healthcare authorities, whether it's public health or government, have not come to terms with this. And, and and I'll also say it again, I think there's been some, uh, you know, flawed messaging, uh, specifically around Omicron, where we've kind of been told two things uh, which are wrong, that first of all, it's mild, and it might be mild for people who are vaccinated, and vaccines are still incredibly effective uh, for people, um, you know, to, you know, battle this virus. But um, once again, we know that there's significant numbers of people who are unvaccinated. That includes children, uh, especially when we even when we talk about children five to eleven, they've either had zero or one dose, and that's not enough. And children less than five had no doses, and it sort of you know this policy also abandons people who once again are immunocompromised, living in congregate settings. These people are extremely vulnerable to the impacts of an outbreak, the impacts of a virus, and yes, we are finding out this virus is still going to be deadly. Well, and I'm really glad that you're making that point. That was one of the thoughts that I had. What may be um, the state of the matter of uh, Omicron in the general population? Well, long-term care is an entirely different society. Yeah, yep, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And the other part of this issue is is that with delivering vaccinations, you know, vaccinations, we can only increase the number of people who are going to be vaccinated, whether we're talking about, you know, the health workers in long-term care, a very specific population, or we're talking about the general public and ramping up our booster rollout, that can only increase in a linear fashion, right? And to be honest, even over the holidays, many of my colleagues stepped up and worked in these vaccination clinics, and it was a heroic effort to see over 200,000 people getting their booster doses on a daily basis, even through the holiday season. Wonderful. But even if we increase by 200,000 per day, Omicron is once again doubling uh, every two to three days and is increasing exponentially. So we can't vaccinate our way uh, out of battling Omicron. That's not the only strategy. And that's where we've People have been saying this for over six months or even over a year that a vaccines plus strategy is needed. So what we need in addition to vaccines is we need N95 masks, 
uh, of course, for health workers and essential caregivers in all healthcare settings, but also for teachers and educators, for members of the general public. We should not be wearing cloth masks, and ideally, we should not be wearing uh, even surgical masks because they have leaks, they're, they have gaping holes in them, and this is an airborne virus. We need these rapid tests, and those were prioritized for businesses rather than for healthcare settings or even for members of the general public, and that was a mistake. And of course, uh, in certain situations, when we have a new variant and we have very rapid spread of that variant, we need to consider stronger public health restrictions earlier to make the pain and suffering that's going to come after later much less. Well, um, Global News and uh, and Chorus changed its guidance on uh, masking in the workplace. Um, I was one of the people who had, what, 50 different varieties of the three-ply cotton masks. Those are now in storage because they are not effective in the face of Omicron. And uh, we have the uh, the medical masks. Um, we don't have N95s yet. Uh, I, yeah. I would imagine that's probably coming down the pike pretty quickly. Went out and bought some of my own just to make sure that we have them. And I think that that's the other part of the CDC guidance, just uh, circling back to Kieran Moore's news conference set for this afternoon. Uh, the CDC guidance the, the focus has been on it being shortened from a 10-day span down to a 5-day span. Um, but the other part of that that I, th- I hope doesn't get lost in the translation is that masking is a really big part of that new guideline. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I agree with you. And once again, I don't have an answer as to why it's taken so long for you know, health authorities and uh, you know, governments to recognize airborne transmission. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that I heard from the Canadian Society of PPE manufacturers that they could mass produce these N95 masks very quickly if only they had a procurement order from, you know, various levels of government that would be interested. And, you know, that's one issue. So, of course, everyone needs to have access to these N95 masks, not just people who have money. Uh, definitely people who are working uh, with vulnerable populations, whether we talk about education workers or healthcare workers, should be prioritized. And, yeah, I mean, in addition to that, I think there needs to be a change in our culture. And speaking about masks, where I, I mean, I want to see, you know, in the next press conference, I want to see the Premier of Ontario, the Minister of Health, uh, any of our government leaders, uh, you know, Dr. Moore, I think they should all be wearing N95 masks. And, you know, they should put this message out that this is an airborne virus. Uh, please do not wear cloth masks. And, you know, masking is one aspect, but also improving ventilation is very important. So cleaning the air in any way possible, whether it's the HEPA filter, whether it's opening the windows, uh, turning your stovetop on, or, you know, or sorry, your stovetop fan on or the bathroom fan on. These are some protections that we can also use in this layered approach to protect ourselves from COVID-19. Dr. Arya, you've given us some really good points to be listening for this afternoon uh, when the Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Karen Moore, holds his news conference. So I thank you very, very much for your time and your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Ahmed Arya is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, and he's also a palliative care physician. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As 2021 comes to an end, a traditional beverage to celebrate the end of one year and beginning of the next is sparkling wine. But what to choose? Will it be champagne or one of the other similar style wines available at your LCBO? Here to help make that selection is Heidi House, whose blog is The Wine Student. Welcome, Heidi. Hi, Shona. Nice to speak with you. I love the tagline on your blog. <laughs> Learning about wine, one sip at a time. That's really what it's all about. That's 
pretty much how I do it. Um, slow and steady wins the race on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what options are there for New Year's? Uh, several, actually, in terms of sparkling wine. Obviously, we have champagne, and that's a um, pretty classic choice. But we also have the wonderful Prosecco, um, Cava, which is a sparkling wine from Spain, and Osti, which is also from Italy. Most people are familiar with Osti Sumanti, um, Moscato Dosti, that sort of thing. Um, so those are some of our, our top picks, I think, for the holiday. Now, is the difference between these sparkling wines... Um is it, is it just that Champagne wanted and licensed the word Champagne um, to represent their wines? I mean, is it the same process? Not in every one. Um, with Cava, the Spanish sparkling wine, it is made in the traditional method, much like Champagne is, with uh, primary fermentation as well as the secondary fermentation in the bottle. For things like Prosecco and the Oskis, they're made in more of the Charmat method, which is the single tank method. So they just go into the tank, fermentation happens, um, the yeasts and sugars are added, of course, to, to depend on the flavor that the, uh, the winemaker is looking for, and then it's placed right in the bottle, capped and ready to go. Now, I've noticed in the corks, some of the corks look a little bit different, like there's a layering on, on, the, on the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Is that an important part of the process? Um, I don't know that it's specifically an important part. I think what it may do is keep some of the um, air from getting inside once the final corkage has happened, um, just to really protect the integrity of the wine. Now, wine has been around for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until, I guess, just a few hundred years ago that they discovered you could put bubbles in it. <laughs> well, that's true. And that may have been just a very happy accident, um, just in terms of combining the yeast and sugars and seeing what happened. Um, so, but yes, but it makes it much more fun and a nice alternative to still wines. Now, one of the things I've been noticing at the LCBO, you know, strictly for doing research to prepare for this interview and for no <laughs> other reason. Um, I'm of seeing, course. of course, I'm seeing a lot of pink variations and a lot of uh, rosé sparkling wines. Well, they look so pretty in the glass, don't they? <laughs> they do. <laughs> um, but it seems to be a very popular uh, vibe now, if you will, in terms of wine and sparkling. With, um, with wines like champagne, what they'll do is they will add actual red wine to the mix to create that color. Not a lot, but just enough to get that really pretty color. Um, for some of the other sparkling wines, what they'll do is they'll have a little bit more skin contact where they have um, the skin of the red grapes in contact with the wine as it's fermenting and then they take that off. Again, it's controlled because they don't want to have too much color in the wine. They just want that really pretty pink color to exist. And does it affect the flavor at all? It can a little bit. There's a tiny bit of tannins that are released if you have any kind of skin contact at all. Um, so there's a tiny bit of a tannic flavor to it. To say it's a high tannin wine at that point would probably not be accurate, but there is a little bit more of that sort of tannic flavor to it, dryness to it. Yeah. Now, we've covered uh, a little bit about champagne, Prosecco, Cava, Asti, and, and Spumantes. Is there a Niagara sparkler? That might be an idea for New Year's. There is. Uh, there's the Cuvée Catherine from Henry of Pelham, um, available at the LCBO as well. It is made in the traditional method. Um, their grapes are hand-picked and pressed 
um, very gently. So it's really, you know, that slower process of making the wine. And then they do the um, um, both primary and secondary bottle fermentation as well. So it's using the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay grapes, um, very traditional as well. And they also have a secondary one. They have the Carte Blanche, which is a Blanc de Blanc. And Blanc de Blanc is 100% Chardonnay. There's no Pinot Noir in the mix at all. And what would you pair that with? That could be paired. There's some very interesting ways that you can pair uh, champagne, typically, or the sparkling wines. Typically, um, most are paired with fish, with gentle cheeses, um, some sweets, that sort of thing. But you could pair this with, I'm, I'm down with just about anything. Because it's made in that traditional method, you could pair it with Twinkies or with lemon loaf. And I'm telling you this because there's a slight lemony vibe to Twinkies. And yes, it's a unique pairing that really helps enhance the flavor of a true champagne um, or sparkling wine made in that traditional method. As well, you're going to get a little bit of that beautiful cream that's inside the Twinkie that'll pair really, really nicely. It'll be thick, it'll be creamy and kind of sweet. So the nice acidity with that traditional method sparkling wine will cut into that um, richness really nicely. And you get that refreshing lemon vibe to it. So it's kind of a different one. You could also try French fries. French fries are a little bit different, but again, they're fatty, they're rich, um, they're salty. So that can bring out a lot of different flavors in the wine as well. So pretty much the sky is the limit if you're feeling creative. That's interesting you should say French fries. I mean, first off, champagne and Twinkies, nothing says class like that pairing. (laughs) But, But when you're talking about French fries, one of the things that I had heard would be a really great pairing with any of these sparkling wines would be potato chips. And that kind of goes along the same line. Absolutely. Absolutely. As well, corn dogs. Yes. We're staying classy on this one. Corn dogs with Dijon mustard. And again, the same sort of thing applies. You've got that fried essence. You've got that little bit of fattiness. And the Dijon, especially if it's like a grainy Dijon, can really bring out a lot of those nice flavors, acid for acid, because the wine is a little bit more acidic, um, but in a good way. So the acidity of the Dijon mustard is kind of nice. I think if you're pairing it with ballpark mustard, that might not work because it'll be a little bit bitter and that might bring some of those flavors out. But if you stick with like a Dijon or a hearty, grainy kind of mustard, that would be good too. And again, keeping it classy with the corn dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're going to have, say, a Grey Poupon, I would think one, <laughs> one would need to have champagne then. Yes, or any of the wonderful sparklers, but yeah, it depends on how much you want to spend on that champagne and whether you want to pair a corn dog with an expensive wine. But I mean, viable options, but one of the things that I'm hearing in what you're saying is that uh, because of the, the very clean finish on a lot of these wines, it pairs very well with things that are uh, that have a creamy, cheesy kind of vibe to it. Absolutely. Um, anything that's rich, that's smooth, that's buttery, that's got this nice amount of fattiness to it, pairs beautifully with any of those sparkling wines, going from champagne to Asti to Prosecco to Cava. Any one is a good choice. Now, when you're talking about uh, buttery things, that immediately puts me in mind of one of my favorite pairings, which is Prosecco <laughs> with either crab or shrimp. Wonderful. It's so good. And because naturally those wines pair very well with any kind of shellfish or fish um, offering, it, it, it can be 
just through the moon, especially if you've got that buttery, that beautiful clarified butter with it that you're dipping into or serving with it, that can be absolutely wonderful. Now, you know, I've, I've seen a number of different um, kinds of glassware that you would serve sparkling wines in. Does it really make a difference? Mm-hmm. Actually, it does. Um, the traditional uh, coupe glass, which um, was actually invented in 1660s England um, and not by Louis the Sixteenth for Marie Antoinette, we know that story quite well. That is a myth. It was not based on the shape of her um, her breast attribute. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I was drawing it mild. <laughs> um, but what happens with that traditional glass is you lose your bubbles. The effervescence goes, and you don't really get the true aroma of. Um, that beautiful champagne that you're spending money on or that wine that you're spending some money on. So the coupe glass, traditional champagne glass, is very pretty, but it doesn't keep things lasting as long as they should. Um, Many people like the flute, and the flutes can be really beautiful. The bubbles go up, and they look like this beautiful, gorgeous necklace going up the side of the glass and look so pretty. And if you want to prolong the bubbles, either for a photo shoot or your Instagram page or whatever you need, the flute is probably a nice way to go. However, because there's not a lot of space in the glass for you to be able to to sniff the the wine or to really enjoy the aromas, it doesn't get much of a chance to aerate the way that it should. Um, You really want to bring out those beautiful aromas of green apple and honey and and, uh, citrus and, you know, almonds and all that great flavors. So most most trends are going now towards the tulip glass. It's sort of shaped like a little tulip. It has a slightly larger bowl and then kind of comes into the nose. So what it does is it gives that surface area to really bring out those beautiful aromas and scents of the wine. And it also allows you to get your nose inside the glass. And yes, the bubbles might tickle your nose a little bit, but you can get those great aromas as you sip. So it really enhances the experience of the wine. Well, one downfall, though, is um, you can't really make a great champagne fountain out of the tulip flutes. I think that would be very difficult. No, <laughs> no, you have to really be going through an awful lot. And it does look prettier with the coupe glass, for sure. But um, and, eh, what are you going to do? <laughs> and to cycle back to, you know, what you were saying earlier about the corn dogs with the Dijon mustard, <laughs> would that then be served in a plastic glass? Yes. You know, even a jelly jar and a pinch works. The only thing that you really do want to have is not a stemless glass, per se, um, because you don't want the heat of your hand to warm up um, the freshness and the temperature of that wine. You want it sort of chilled and cold, um, opening up just a little bit to give you those aromas, um, but you really want to have it in a stemmed glass. So the jelly jar might be good in a pinch, but probably not if you're really wanting to enjoy that wine for a while. Well, we only have a few minutes left, so there are a couple of questions that I definitely wanted to get to. And one is, you know, there's a real price difference from uh, champagne to other sparkling wines. Is champagne Mm -hmm. worth the price? I think, yes, because if you're looking at the traditional method in which it is made, it is a true luxury item. They handpick the grapes, they press them with great care and gentleness. Um, The primary fermentation, there's a lot of alchemy involved in that as they're trying to create the perfect blend um, with each vintage that happens and with each year that it comes out. So there's a lot of history you're paying for, there's a lot of tradition, and there's a lot of work that goes into champagne, especially with that um, primary and secondary fermentation process. There's an awful lot that goes into it. 
So yeah, I think in, in many respects with champagnes, you are getting what you pay for. Um, but if your budget doesn't allow for the big expensive ones, they're more moderately priced, smart, sparkling wines, and there's always Prosecco. Cava also has a lot of those nice qualities because it's also made in that traditional method. So if you really like that champagne taste, but you have a lesser budget, Cava might be the way to go. Um, Prosecco is always nice and, and blends well with so many nice foods, um, as well as Osti, which has a little bit more of a sweeter vibe. So if you like a sweeter sparkling wine, that's sometimes the way to go as well. One of the other questions I definitely want to ask you is, what are you having for New Year's? <laughs> what am I having for New Year's? I have not chosen mine yet. I do have a Prosecco that is always on in, in the fridge, ready to go. Um, so in a pinch, I might do that. But I really want to go out and explore some of the different ones at my local uh, wine store and just see what's kind of interesting for this year. So it could be a little champagne, might be going into Cata this year. We'll see. Now, what would be your selection for champagne? I mean, Dom Perignon seems to be, you know, the one that everybody uh, hears about, but it's pretty expensive. Are there champagnes that are of a lesser price point? I, my favorite, to be honest, is um, Veuve Clicquot. Uh, I like the subtle flavors that it has. And I find that with, you know, with any of my shellfish dishes, or maybe I might try it with Twinkies, I don't know. Um, we'll see. I find that it, it's a really nice um, traditional champagne for a better price point. Usually about, probably less, le- much less than 100 Um, where I'm at. So I tend to find that that is one of the nicer ones. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot of different selections for New Year's. And if you haven't decided yet, uh, Heidi House, you've got 24 (laughs) hours, so you you best be thinking about it. I know, I'm a bad wine student. Don't put me in detention for that because I haven't found my New Year's Eve one. Uh, The selection is out there. Uh, Heidi House is learning about wine one sip at a time. That's sort of a version of self-directed learning. You can find out more (laughs) on her blog called The Wine Student. Heidi, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Shona. Happy holidays. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.